There's something about the word social that feels a bit playtime, a bit non-serious. Your social life might get in the way of your work life, but it could never be a serious work life, surely. And the social is not something on which to base a heavyweight theory about the future of work, is it? Well, if you think that, think again. Our guest this time on the podcast believes that whether we know it or not, we are all now living and working in the social age. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. And now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. And knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. I first came across our guest on this episode when he was speaking at one of those online conferences we had in the lockdowns, remember those? And first reaction was, here comes another one, a good talker with lots of airy-fairy ideas that bear no relation to reality. About 10 minutes later, my head exploded. Since then, I followed his daily vlogs and he's featured in our sister podcast, Great Minds on Learning, because he truly is a bit of a great mind. Kate Fitzgerald, head of fact, tell us about him. Hack facts. Julian Stodd is captain of Seasalt Learning, a strategic consultancy that partners on the design and delivery of global solutions around leadership, culture, learning transformation and change. He has an academic background in communication theory, psychology and neurophysiology, learning design, educational psychology and philosophy. Julian has written 14 books and in 2016 was awarded the Learning Performance Institute's Colin Corder Award for Services to Learning. So, Jay Curtis, Head of Themes. Give us the skinny, the heads up, the TLDR. What did we talk about? Wow, you were really punching above your intellectual weight on this one. Thanks a lot. You did manage to cover a fair bit of ground, though. Julian's concept of the social age, social learning and social leadership how organisations are changing, and his new book, The Humble Leader. Well, I'm humbled. We have a lot of good talkers on the podcast, but Julian's ability to speak completely off the cuff in clear, perfectly formed sentences that use simple terms, but which plant thought bombs deep in your psyche to carry on exploding for days afterwards, is nothing short of jaw-dropping. I could listen to him all night, and hopefully you all enjoy listening to this conversation just as much as I enjoyed holding it. Julian Stodd, welcome to The Learning Hack. Followers of our sister podcast, Great Minds on Learning, will have heard of you already as one of the theorists we covered in this season. So it's a significant honour to have a great mind on the pod. You have a new book out. Uh, Let's get the book plug out of the way. It's called The Humble Leader. You shared an unboxing video um, on YouTube. Julian, can you unbox the book for us now? What's it about? (laughs) I I will do. Um, The Humble Leader is is a guided reflection through the subject of humility. And I'm a little bit embarrassed about it, to be honest, because uh, I I normally describe myself as an evidence-based practitioner. Uh, my work is research-led, evidence-based, but uh, this book seems to have uh, generated a, an a unwarranted amount of attention, despite it being highly qualitative and subjective in nature. And it's an exploration of our own humility. It's, it's extremely short. It's only 3,000 words, 
Um, but perversely, it's taken me longer to write this book than any other. I, I started it back in 2012, and it's been through multiple iterations since then. Um, and it just explores that. You know, what is humility? Is it is it a, a behavior? Is it a judgment? Is it something that uh, we should seek to find? It certainly seems to be something that people overwhelmingly value. Uh, so it really just explores this through eight or nine different angles, and it's set up as a conversation. So a major theme of your work is something called the social age, and I'm sure this comes into the book, uh, which I'm sorry, I haven't had a chance to read yet. It's not something that, that's on the way, it's something that we're living in now. Can you tell us what you mean by the term the social age and why we should give it close attention? Yeah, I, I set the social age up as the, the context of all of my work, which is quite broad. I'm a generalist, really. Um, and the social age just describes the world that surrounds us. But instead of choosing to look at it purely through a, a technological lens, I, I generally say clearly there is a lot of emergent technology, but where is that landing us socially? So it's a, a sort of sociological perspective. And I look at a, a range of features of the social age. For example, uh, the radical connectivity. So historically, we tended to be connected geographically locally or through systems which were inherently formal or owned, be they postal systems or national transport systems or email systems owned by organizations or fax services. Today, we tend to be connected in many different ways, almost all of which are beyond the oversight or control of any organization or individual or indeed law enforcement community. So we are radically connected. Another aspect we can look at is the rise of community. We tend to be connected into many different communities in many different ways, which probably fragments notions of identity as well, giving us multiple spaces to learn and rehearse and prototype and explore. In my own research in 2018-2019, published in the Community Builder Guidebook, I saw that people, for example, in the National Health Service in the UK, identify that they're probably members of at least 15 different communities that help them to be effective on a weekly basis. So radical connectivity, the rise of communities, and other effects such as a general rebalancing of power, uh, it's flooding away from organizations and formal structures towards individuals and emergent communities. Now, I chart a whole series of, of dimensions of this, but broadly, you can look at the social age in, in two different ways. You, you can either say everything is pretty much the same as it always was, just in a slightly different flavor. Or you can look at it and say everything's pretty much the same as it always was, which means everything is slightly different than it always used to be. And it's that viewpoint of difference. So if, if you believe, as I do, that essentially our context of operation has changed, then it stands to reason that as individuals, as organizations, and even into broader structures such as government um, and society will also change. And so my work explores and tracks that change across a, a whole series of areas. So I suppose the thing that's really different there that, that has changed is with this hyper-connectivity we've had since you know, the dawn of Web 2 
which is read write uh, people are not only consumers they're also now producers of, of, of media um, in their connection and there are no gatekeepers and you have a community that is trying to police itself and perhaps we're, we're seeing kind of birth pangs of a, a new type of way of poli policing communication um, in, in things that at first seem quite radical and extreme and we have the phenomenon of what people call cancel culture um, which is now being deployed very effectively against uh, Putin in the, the, the Ukraine war strangely enough it's the biggest um, example of cancel culture that there's been I, I think but but that thing of a connected community without gatekeepers is radically new and it seems to change um, and your work has a lot to say about this the relationship of people to organizations that they work for um, obviously the pandemic has brought about some notable shifts in that relationship but in a sense it's only brought to the surface things that were going on already I think you probably agree with that uh, which are the many possible scenarios for the future of work that are being touted post-pandemic at the moment like hyper-tailorism um, you know, a return of kind of organisational paternalism, do you see as having validity? Well, I mean, what might happen with that, do you think? So, I mean, a simple question is that most likely everything will happen. Um, I would typically say that there are some general principles of change that we see in the context of the social age. Uh, the most important of which is that we are almost certainly moving from a, a, a place where change tended to happen in, in steps and plateaus towards it being more constant. And I don't mean that as a sort of deep um, theoretical framework. I just mean in a rather pragmatic and practical sense, we are unlikely to step forward and plant our foot upon a rock. Most likely we'll be standing in sand and it will be moving around us. So I think that the future of work, or however we, we choose to define this debate, was already in significant flux before the pandemic. But what the pandemic has done is fractured the dominant narratives. It's been very notable that whilst there has been a high price paid by individuals, it hasn't led to a flurry of organisational failures. But many organisations fail to learn the obvious lesson from that. Something that was unthinkable in other words, a fully distributed organisation working virtually, barely missing a beat, turned out not only to be thinkable, but to be very doable. But they failed to take the next logical step, which is to say, so what else that we believe will turn out to be nothing but belief? Now, I published a book in 2020 called The Socially Dynamic Organisation, a new model of organisational design, which was intended to be quite a structural view of the evolution of organizations to think how will we restructure them in this post-industrial uh, almost post-scientific management approach that work looks at how we'll move into the multi-dimensional organization much of my work sits at that intersection of formal and social systems so structure that is owned by the organization such as hierarchy and assets and infrastructure and rules and system and process mechanisms of consistency and conformity at scale and that which is held within the social structure, which is trust, social connection, creativity, uh, and social movements, essentially. So everything that flows around the formal structure. Now, in that book, which was intended, I say, to be sort of really quite practical and structural, 
I found myself writing a chapter that said, organisations are simply entities of story and belief. They're not actually real. It's worth remembering that. Very little of what surrounds us every day is actually real. You know, my, my phone here is real. It weighs, you know, whatever it weighs, 400 grams. And if I post it to you and you pick it up, it will still weigh 400 grams. But our understanding of society is largely made up. You know, the notion of money, the functioning of economies, the structures of organisations. We've come to believe somehow that they have inherent validity, that they operate like gravity, but they don't. They're just made up systems that act largely as mechanisms of collectivism, bringing people together with diverse skills and capabilities to achieve effect at scale, to make an iPhone and be able to send it around the world. So that's useful to understand because the mechanisms we have today are not the only possible mechanisms. So the organizations we hold today, we inhabit today, are held in a series of, in my work, what I would call dominant narratives. So these are both internal schemas of understanding of how things work. You know, you must get a job, you must earn some money, you must have a career, through to the belief we have in how we should follow the mission of organizations. But dominant narratives can be fractured. And the pandemic has helped to fracture the notion of work as a function of geography and infrastructure. So the, the work I'm doing on this at the moment, I'm, I'm calling the work of place, which is to understand as we cease to connect work and geographical place, then how will we understand the workplace? How will we understand the nature of work? Now, this isn't just a feature of the pandemic. It runs back before then. Career has already been fractured and fragmented by 40 years of organisations exploiting people and br deliberately breaking that social contract in service of profit. And what we've seen is that people increasingly seek a backbone to career a place to belong, which is outside of their employer. So we move away from employment being the backbone of career, probably towards community being a backbone of career, with various other emergent structures. You know, your community around these podcasts, LinkedIn, communities of practice, probably new and emergent guilds, things that we can be invited into, can choose to belong to, things that increasingly give us access to knowledge, to capability, to insight, all of which exist beyond the organisation. So if we really focus this in to think about what will the future of work look like, we can see some broad trends. Firstly, a disaggregation of geography and work, which fractures a relationship between place and power. So power has always been vested within place and the segregation of space. A church is a good example. A church, through its boundary wall, separates out space which is sacred from space which is not. And even within a church, we get a space for a congregation and we get a pulpit, which again is segregated space. You or I would not typically have permission to walk into the pulpit to speak. It is segregated according to power. All of that disappears as we move virtual. Virtual is inherently more democratized. And again, power is rebalanced.
That tells us that the new normal, the return to work, whatever cliche or trope you choose to subscribe to, will be a negotiated feature, not an imposed one. And we already see this in plenty of global organisations which are seeking to impose a new narrative of normal on populations which have learnt, who now understand that they hold different types of power. You make it very difficult to be an interviewer because I just want to listen <laughs> and take notes, perhaps. I think that's that's a fascinating answer. I think I have to, um, you know, for the sake of balance, ask if, if you're an idealist, if, if there's quite a lot of idealism in your message, because it seems to me that authoritarianism, command and control will fail because it's not viable in the social age. And yet all around us, we see a recrudescence of authoritarianism. Um, and there are so many organisations which have a strong command and control ethos. Um, not necessarily the, the, the military, that's, that's quite an interesting case actually. But um, many organisations like, uh, for instance, outsourcing organisations, which have a lot of you know people in high-vis jackets, call centres and so on. And some of them would argue it's necessary for the sectors and the territories they work in. Does your message only suit a subset of organisations? Um. Well, no, because it, it, that might be to misrepresent my message. So I'm not, uh, I, I'm not arguing uh, that we need one system. I'm arguing that we need both systems because both systems achieve different things. So formal systems, which are inherently structures of control, are vital, especially for organizations operating at scale. So the formal structure is one of collectivism and effect at scale. It's a system of conformity, replicability and scale and its specific mechanisms are infrastructure which holds formal power which is essentially a mechanism that holds consequence as well as system and process which give us consistency and conformity and we need people to be consistent and to conform to achieve effect at scale so if starbucks wants me to be able to buy a coffee in southampton and a coffee at changi airport in singapore and that coffee to taste the same then broadly speaking, we need global supply chains and we need a global view of culture and service. We need there to be some consistency and conformity. However, consistency and conformity holds strength in a specific way. So in the socially dynamic organization, I talk about porcelain organizations. And a porcelain organization which holds its strength specifically in system, uh, in, uh, system and structure and process and hierarchy holds a great compressive strength. So it can compete against known competitors and it can hold its own in a market that it understands. However, if you hit it from the side, it shatters. It lacks uh, a resilience because it is engineered and optimized to operate in the domain that it understands well. Now that sort of has all sorts of consequences for us, but I'll, I'll, I'll limit myself to one. Social structures nest within formal structures, so networks of trust and community and individual investment, so the effort that we invest beyond that which we are contracted to give. Those can give us all sorts of things, and indeed many if not most organisations are trying to unlock this through social collaborative models through building the purpose-led organisation, through trying to understand that you cannot buy what you want as utility alone. So one triangle of the organization is utility, time and money, but there are other triangles that govern the operation of an organization. 
So you can buy my time for a dollar an hour, but that doesn't mean you can buy my trust or goodwill or belief. So we see plenty of organizations trying to earn that engagement back, which has typically been squandered over time. Now, you've mentioned some communities like the military, and I work quite extensively in, in the UK and uh, US and uh, across NATO in, in different military contexts. And one thing that you see there, which is actually interesting, when I um, carried out some research in a US military community, uh, senior leaders there believed that uh, something like 97% of the time when I asked them to, to, to average out a figure, they are effective through the permission and consensus of others. So there's an understanding that formal power can give you strength in one dimension, but operations typically take place in as a multi-dimensional feature. So I think organizations need both. We need phenomenal strong formal structures and we need phenomenal strong social structures. We need leaders who can lead in one system and leaders who can lead in the other. And in my work on social leadership, I describe leading at the intersection of system. So how do formal leaders earn more social authority? How do social leaders operate within and around formal structures? So overall, I guess at a, a, a foundational principle level, we see that we need to build organizations that move from being one-dimensional to multi-dimensional. Because of course, whilst you only have one formal structure, no matter how big your organization is, there is only ever one formal structure we have multiple concurrent and overlapping social structures. And so leadership becomes a far more fluid function. So it's interesting, you know, you say, am I an idealist? No, I'm an optimist. And I'm also quite liberal in my views. But don't mistake that for an underlying view of how organisations will function as the ecosystem around them changes. We can paint a picture that says that an organisation in the future will probably be slightly smaller. It seems unlikely that we will get larger structural organizations. They will likely be smaller. They will likely be more permeable to expertise. They will likely have different mechanisms of engagement, both with individuals and with emergent guilds and collectives that hold knowledge and carry out innovative functions. They will likely trade in multiple currencies, currencies of reputation and trust, notably, currencies of opportunity. They will be able to experiment in the everyday. And that's interesting. I'm carrying out some large-scale research at the moment across 37 organizations, most of them FTSE 100, about their ability to experiment and their ability to process failure. And they show very variable experiences of this. They talk about experimentation a lot, but many of them seem unable to actually experiment at scale beyond formally defined efforts. So essentially, we will need to build organizations that can learn what they need to be rather than trying to pick it up from an HBR article or a LinkedIn piece. That sounds like really interesting research. Get you back to talk further about that. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet, who uses it? Despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy. I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect 
to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. Meet the evolving nature of work with Cornerstone Explore, a holistic people growth experience that delivers a fully integrated, personalized journey of learning, skill development, and career mobility for every person. I'd share all the ways Cornerstone Explore is designed and personalized for the ways your people want to grow and work, but this is only a 30 second ad. To learn how you can unite people growth with business success, visit csod.info slash future ready. You also say we are in the age of social learning. Now, this podcast has a predominantly learning audience who will have been waiting very patiently to hear something specific to their function, perhaps. What do you think are the important focus areas for learning professionals now? Well, the, the, I mean, that's a, that's a big question in itself. And I'm, <laughs> now I'm wishing I'd talked less at the start so we'd have more time for this. Um, my work around social learning, you know, is quite pragmatic and practical. So how do we unlock the power of social collaborative models of learning, which often engage with types of knowledge which are rather ordinary, you know, the everyday lived experience. There are a number of features that are likely to be extremely significant in this. In no particular order, let me sort of throw some out. So the first is to understand the relationship between community and learning, which is to understand how people come to belong in communities and the different types of community there are and the forces that hold them together or break them apart. So social learning inherently is about access to tacit and tribal knowledge, which is held hidden away, often for good reasons. So we will need to understand that there is a difference between a community that you belong within and a community that you are given membership of. So understanding the difference between membership and belonging will be important. Membership can be held within a formal system and given to people and held in technologies, but belonging is a social feature and is generated by individuals and communities. So understanding communities is going to be a key role. That's the work I've explored through the trust guidebook, the trust sketchbook, the community builder guidebook, you know, just what are these things? And I should say, as with much of my work, um, it, it's often wrong. You know, my, my early work on communities, I now think almost 180 degrees opposite to what I wrote at that point. That's so refreshing <laughs> to hear well, that kind pragmatic. of... pragmatic. I mean, it's, I might as well tell you I'm wrong rather than wait for you to tell me I'm wrong. So <laughs> it's... it's uh, uh, my work is, you know, the privilege of my work is that I'm able to claim a space where I can be wrong. You know, I try not to be wrong in stupid ways, uh, but I still nonetheless manage to find ways where I can be wrong. And that's what it should be. You know, learning is inherently a process of discovering new levels of ignorance. It doesn't necessarily invalidate what you thought before. I, I published a piece yesterday on the archaeology of learning. It said, you know, as you sort of strip back, we often forget that the, the, the vaunted platform we stand on today is largely built upon the failure of our vaunted platform of yesterday. Um, there's plenty of, you know, plenty of examples. I spent significant amounts of time when I was younger doing my postgrad work exploring learning styles, just thinking that that was just like the most amazing thing. I spent significant time trying to build out a taxonomy of them and carrying out research. And, you know, I get quite frustrated when people ridicule others who have a belief in learning styles because, you know, I believed it and I'm not an idiot. I mean, I'm not a genius, but I'm not an idiot. So we have to understand that when we get trapped, we often get trapped in ideas which are intellectually appealing 
and are highly elastic. So they tend to stretch beyond what the evidence shows us. And we're all trapped in them, all of us. You know, even the, 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 the most brilliant people we know are trapped within the, the frame that they have built around themselves. Storytelling is another key skill. You know, if I was to really highlight the, the most important things, understanding storytelling, how stories form individually, collectively, and organizationally is super important. It's much more important than understanding technology. You know, technology is great and I love it, but technology in itself won't give us social collaboration, but understanding stories will help us understand it. So organizations need community builders, they need storytellers, they almost certainly need learning scientists, but what they don't necessarily need is people who are a genius learning scientist, but fail to understand the practical application of organizations. So I think this is interesting. We need to be evidence-informed. We need to understand validity. That, that term, evidence-informed, you'll get from... Uh, you'll, you'll get from Miriam uh, Nissen uh, and Guy Wallace and these fantastic people who, who I love that phrase. I used to say evidence-based and now I say evidence-informed. Um, who, uh, so, so, you know, we need learning science, but we don't need to worship it like a god. We need to be informed by it. We need to understand validity. We need to fracture our own certainty and understanding. I've, over the last 18 months, I, about 18 months ago, I got quite depressed actually about aspects of my own work and I thought I don't know if I want to do work in learning anymore because I kind of I'd written at that point you know books about social learning mobile learning learning methodologies all these different things yeah, it's all fine you know but I, I just felt trapped in my own understanding so I started trying to give myself a permission to vandalize that knowledge to, to break it apart and just a couple of weeks ago, I launched this new Learning Fragments site, which is a deliberately non-linear and incomplete body of work. You know, I, I, I don't feel it's ever going to get to a point where I feel comfortable to write a book about learning in it, all its magnitude. But I like the idea of exploring non-linear, fragmentary approaches to understanding. And again, that's important. We will need generalists, you know, people who can cross over between data science, between technology, between storytelling. We will need pragmatists, you know, because it's no good having a theory that doesn't take account of a global organization with a massive back catalogue and legacy and operational requirements today. We have to be practical and we have to maintain a degree of uncertainty. Almost any time we believe that we have cracked something, that we have an answer, the very next thing we should do, after a brief pause for celebration, is to start taking apart our own certainty. One thing we very often ask guests for is their origin story. Um, can you tell us how you came to do what you do now? Uh, living by the coast as I do, um, the Hack Shack is in Brighton. I'm particularly interested in the salty theme in your titles. Um, so could you give us that origin story? <laughs> I, can give, I can give you an origin story. It's a bit rambling. You know, as a generalist, one tends to ramble. Uh, in fact, you'll, you'll see that really influences my, my work at the moment. I often operate in, in landscapes, the, the landscape of trust, the landscape of communities. 
Um, you know, I'm a scientist by training, so I come from a background in, in archaeology and material science, and I'm kind of proudly a scientist. Um, but I, 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 I stuttered into a sort of academic space where I, I managed to survive for six years being extremely broke, uh, but reading a lot of books. And then lurched into creating a, a business with a with an e-learning team you know building compliance training in banks using sort of videos and interactive techniques and having <laughs> a lot done of fun that, yes. yeah the you know the money flowed into that area we were doing call center training and all sorts of things and it was it, it was interesting but i also realized it meant that i i lost an important side of my work you know i lost the research and I lost the academic writing, which I realized I didn't miss, but I did miss writing. So I sold that business back in 2010, gave myself three years to, to, to relax. I, I kind of acted then as a, a globally learning director in, in um, GP Strategies, as it was, who had who sold that business to. And um, in that time, I started building out this work about the, the social age and exploring it. And I knew that I wanted a freedom in my work to explore ideas, but I knew I also wanted to put it into practice. And that was why I founded Sea Salt Learning. Um, and the imagery is very uh, simple. Uh, it's really about uh, travel and connection and about creating safe harbours. So I describe Sea Salt above all else as a safe harbour for independent thinkers, which means we're quite fractious and disagree with each other quite a bit but we maintain the harbour wall around us as any good community does you know we build walls and we hear each other's ideas and we learn within these harbour spaces but then we venture out onto the seas and get caught in the storms and we try to stay within sight of each other so there is this notion for me about traveling and you know my work I'm very fortunate so typically takes me all over the world and into all these incredible different communities and that's sort of baked into our culture and our belief so we're we're nautical uh, as we as we travel we maintain our harbor walls around us and uh, it's kind of an important part of our culture it's a little bit fun but it's uh, it's quite important as well so now that you've given us the uh, kind of the story of how you got to where you are can you tell us a bit about how you work with organizations uh, without viol violating any NDAs, can you give us an example, perhaps, of how you've made a difference within an organisation, perhaps a kind of mini case study? I tend to, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in that uh, my work tends to be inbound. People reach out uh, to engage around these key ideas. Um, social leadership has been a, a, a popular and, and, and uh, I guess, successful part of that. Um, I, I quite often joke that, uh, as you know, I, I, I work according to a principle of working out loud. So I, I publish my work every day. My work is available openly and freely to everybody uh, to, to the largest extent possible. So uh, just about all of my books are available as free ebooks, or people can buy them on, um, uh, you know, as a physical format if they want a physical format. Uh, I run open programs all the time. This year I'm running um, 5,000 places through the quiet leadership work, a four-week, you know, in-depth journey exploring leadership in the smallest of actions. Uh, and then at the other end of things, you know, we do these big uh, organizational commercial programs. 
Um, that might look uh, like um, you know some level of strategic consulting. I'm, I'm working with an organisation now around the, the future of work. You know, with a with a chief exec and leadership team looking at how they redefine their work of place, at which will cascade down into the structure of that global organisation. Um, leadership work is typically, uh, as you know, sort of segregated. So organisations tend to put more effort into their senior leadership. Um, their senior leadership role. So designing and delivery of those programs. Um, the work I kind of really like is uh, I run a range of certification programs which are based around experimentation. So they are social learning programs. Uh, I normally say they, they have some ideas, which is really the research and the theory. They have some techniques which are quite practical and applied. And then people carry out an experiment in their own reality within the structure of the program. That's a very typical social learning approach. You, you don't learn and then put it into practice. You put it into practice whilst you are learning. So you get these action research loops. Um, so, you know, we're lucky. We've worked with some of the biggest and best um, brands, I guess, in the world. Uh, of course, military organizations, religious organizations, technology, pharmaceutical, and so on. I'm really proud of that work. You know, I am very proud of it. But most of all, I try to anchor my work in practice. So if people can go away and do something with it, even if all they do with it is disagree with it, take it apart and find something better than themselves, I'm perfectly okay with that. You know, I know you had Donald Clark on here uh, uh, recently, which I loved because he he challenges the very notion of leadership. You know, is leadership a thing? And he may well be right. You know, I've certainly never written anywhere that it's definitely a thing. Yeah. I think it's a useful abstraction with which we can understand systems around us. Uh, that, that was and, my next question, actually, because I mean, <laughs> Donald is a big fan of yours, and he doesn't give his fanhood lightly. I have to say. Um, but he isn't a fan of leadership. Do, do you have any kind of general reflections on on leadership in organisations? You mentioned that it is, you know, they're, they're, they're for for decades now there has been this sort of tension in leadership that some organisations feel it should be opened up to everybody, every kind of team leader in a call centre. Mm -hmm. Others believe it's for the top 10%. And still, as you say, the resources tend to go towards the, the kind of top 10% kind of way of thinking. How do you feel in general about leadership and organisations? Well, I sort of, I sort of let myself off the hook here a, a little bit. Um, uh, let me put it something like this: um, I, I'm really comfortable in my own work, you know, uh, but I don't think it particularly has a lot of value. I think I'm just unconstrained because I've haven't fully learnt to be constrained. And I think there's something valuable in that for organisations. You know, most of the organisations that we inhabit will fail. And they deserve to fail because they fail to change. And they don't stay still because they're full of idiots. You know, I published a, a book, um, I think 2018, called The New York Dereliction Walk. It's, it's my most sort of experimental book, I guess. It's a, it's a story of organisations walking through Manhattan that have failed and, and social ideas, actually, that have collapsed and been reborn through social movements. But in, in putting that work together, it became really clear that, you know, organisations that fail are, are typically good. They're not full of idiots. They're full of people like you and me doing their best. And indeed, they're not full of people that can't see that they're going to fail. 
They just fail to aggregate around a new narrative that will prevent them from failing. And, uh, you know, in, in that sense, organizations deserve to fail if they are unwilling to take on the hard work of change. Now, is that a function of leadership? Well, you know, not just leadership. It's a function of leadership and teams. It's a function of everybody. If, if you are, you know, as I am a researcher, then something is real if people believe it's real. If you're a qualitative researcher and people tell you it's real, then to all intensive purposes, it's real. You know, reputation. I've been doing sessions on reputation this week. It's not real. There's no particle of reputation. There isn't a molecule of rec reputation. And yet, in a very real sense, it acts upon us every day. So it's not a physical force, but it's a force of belief, and it acts upon us back in the real world. Leadership is probably the same. It's not real, it's not really a thing, and yet it acts upon us. So in that <laughs> sort of ducking the question, you know, in that real sense, Donald is right and I'm right. You know, it's both real and unreal. Um, Organisations typically get stuck, not at the inception of action, they get stuck when action takes them into a place where they lose power or control. So this is where social learning typically fails. Uh, the, the first place it fails is that nobody engages because they don't trust the spaces, typically because organisations take a technological approach to a social phenomena. The second place they fail is where they ask people to engage and share their stories and they share their stories and the organisation hates it, so it clamps down on them and tells them what to think. So coming back to your earlier remarks that I suppose the trick is not to fail stupidly but to fail intelligently the trick is probably to recognize that you, that your view of failure is but one subset of all the possible ways to fail so it, it, you know I'll come back to that thing I said earlier change today in a very practical sense, is unlikely to consist of stepping from A to B, from one stepping stone onto another, from a rock to another rock. Most likely, we're moving from a place of certainty into a place of uncertainty. Most likely, the key capability we need is not to spot the destination and run towards it, but to step out into the wilderness with the understanding that we are challenges to find the direction of travel. And that imposes upon us a certain humility, or it should do, along with a recognition that if you have an organisation which is optimised to do one thing, as it changes, it will inherently become sub-optimised. You cannot move from being a winner in one space to a winner in another. You know, if you're a top-class Formula One driver, you probably are not going to win your first World Rally Championship. You may be able to get there, but likely is that you will drop down before you peak again. And that is true for organizations. As they try to adapt, they have to understand that they will become sub-optimized. And that sub-optimization may include the fragmentation of established structures of power and control, established approaches to knowledge, established approaches to learning, even established, appro uh, established approaches to organizational structure and the notion of career. And those that can tolerate that ambiguity are likely the ones that will be able to adapt. And the same is true on an individual level as well. You talked a bit about storytelling. It's being really important within organisations. And there's kind of a component of storytelling, which is about myths. And I don't necessarily mean 
myths in the sense of learning myths like learning styles we need to get rid of. I mean myth as part of the ethos and beliefs of, uh, of, of an organisation and its brand. In other words, what other people believe about it, the stories that keep being told about companies like, I don't know, just take a random example, Marmite, Guinness, um, the monarchy, blah, blah, blah. Do you kind of have a view about myth as a component of storytelling and but distinct from it within the way organizations operate yeah i mean it's it's very interesting in my work around the choreography of learning i talk about how we can use mythology and rituals and artifacts in change because these things are are stories that act upon us so Mythology is obviously a typically an older type of story, but it, it's things which um, are distilled out of our learning and then become embedded in these stories that then exist in the ether around us. In, in this new work on experimentation and failure, I, I talk about folklore, the folklore of failure, which is where a story of failure, which acts upon one person, becomes a folklore which just stays around the organisation and acts upon us all. So it's really about understanding different types of stories and the power of those stories to both inhibit or enable us. And then these other features of um, rituals and artifacts and how they impose upon our behaviour. Much of it comes down to conformity. So there is a general principle that membership requires conformity. Now, that might be conformity to a story or a belief or a set of behaviours. Um, but in general, there is a consequence for not conforming. And so you can understand individual behaviour over time by understanding the different spaces and communities that people operate within and the forces that keep them operating within that space. And you can use that to understand learning. You know, how do people think the unthinkable? How do they look beyond the, the frames, the cognitive frames of understanding that they've formed in learning? You know, in my own work, I, I looked at this first in a book on learning, knowledge and meaning, which was about the construction, the social co-creation of meaning. And that's part of the work I've been vandalizing in this, this new work, where I've started focusing much more strongly on sense making. What are the specifically, what are the mechanisms of sense making within learning individually? within communities and organisationally. And mythology plays upon that because what mythology often does is it validates or idolises existing understanding or existing structures. And so you end up again back at this word of fracturing. How do you fracture the frame of understanding that you have built yourself? How do you fracture a dominant narrative of an organisation or society? How do you fracture the power structures of the existing organization, the legacy domain-based one, in order to create the socially dynamic one? Um, and I find that useful in my own thinking. Well, it's one of the most interesting hours I've spent working on this podcast. R really brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so much to think about. <laughs> Lastly, how can people get hold of your book? and follow your thought more generally. There's the YouTube channel, which I've been binging on recently. 
Uh, so I'm, f I'm afraid the problem with being a generalist is, is, a, is a, there's quite a lot of it. So my, <laughs> the best place to find all my books is, is through the CSELT website. They are on Amazon, but they, that will signpost you out to them. I think there are 15 books and most of them are available free. The Social Age guidebooks are probably a good place to start. They're generally about 10,000 words, research-based, but quite practical and applied. And probably a, within that body of work, a good place to start is something like Community Builder Guidebook or uh, the socially dynamic organization. Um, those are, those are uh, good places to start. The new book uh, on the humble leader, I'm in an interesting space with it at the moment. I've, um, uh, I, I've, I've, I've just got the preview copies here. Uh, I've had thousands of inquiries about it. So I'm a little bit overwhelmed by it. And I'm also a little bit nervous about it because <laughs> for somebody that says I like to be research led and, and practical and applied, this is about the most dreamy book I've had. It's very intangible. It's just a guided reflection. And I'm a bit nervous it might be successful because it's not <laughs> it's not very practical. It says it in the cover. It's it's a reflection. Um, mm. That I'm going to be running um, because, uh, you know, as a publishing business, we're small in the global scheme of things. I'm going to be running a Kickstarter to get the first edition of that published to take some of the, the risk out of, of, of publishing. And then after that, it will be available on Amazon. That will be up in the next couple of weeks, I think. Um, in terms of the other work, um, le the Learning Fragments site is up. I don't know how long that will be up for. If it turns out to be useful, I'll keep at it. It's just three-minute videos um, conversationally about learning. That's just um, learningfragments.substack. Uh, it's on Substack. Uh, you can find it through my Twitter feed or LinkedIn feed. Um, and Social Leadership Daily is something else I've been doing for about 150 days in a row now. It's just 60 seconds a day of, of questions, activities, reflections uh, around social leadership. The heart of my work is the blog, which is julianstodd.wordpress.com. And that's where I publish every day um, the work that explores the context of the social age, learning, leadership, culture, change. That all, the heart of it all is the blog. Plenty to snack on. Julian, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great. It's a pleasure. Thanks ever so much for having me. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to Julian and to our sponsors, Learning Pool and Cornerstone. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Don't miss Great Minds on Learning next week and our upcoming chat on The Learning Hack with Susie Miller, the accessibility expert. Stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it.